Welcome to episode 15 of In the Word with Mel Bennett, a study of scripture passages from the Word of God. We're so glad you're with us today. My name is Steve Webb. Today, Pastor Bennett is in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. He'll be talking about Nicodemus' meeting with Jesus in the night in John 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's get our Bibles out and join Pastor Mel Bennett. Pastor, the floor is yours. Thank you, Steve. We're going to go directly to John, the third chapter, verses 1 through 6, a very familiar passage of Scripture to many of us, uh, simply known as the time when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Let us begin reading at verse number 1, chapter number 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Most of the time Jesus was surrounded by common and very ordinary people. However, here, in this occasion, he meets with an aristocrat of Jerusalem. Nicodemus was an aristocrat indeed. Several things to note about him. First of all, he was a very wealthy man. In John, the 19th chapter, in the 39th verse, we find Nicodemus caring for the body of Jesus after Jesus had died on the cross. Verse number 39 says, And Nicodemus, who at the first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. He would have had to be a wealthy man to have brought this kind of preparation for the body of Jesus. Secondly, he was a Pharisee. In many ways, the Pharisees were the best people in the country. We might possibly call them brotherhood. The entrance into this brotherhood was taken by a pledge in front of three witnesses that they would spend all of their lives observing every detail of the scribal law. What did this mean, then? To a Jew, the law was the most sacred thing in the world. They believed the law, which is the first five books of our Bible, was the perfect word of God. If you removed a word from this volume, you committed a deadly sin. If the law was the complete and perfect word of God, then the law contains everything that a person needs to know how to live a good life. Now, the law, as it stands, consists of a great, wide, noble principles which a person must work out for themselves. But for the Jew of that day, that was not enough. They said the law is not complete. It contains everything necessary for living a good life. Therefore, in the law, there must be a rule and a regulation to govern every possible aspect and incident in every possible moment of life for every possible reason. 
So they set out to extract from the great principles of the law an infinite number of rules and regulations to govern every conceivable situation in life. They changed the law of the great principles into the legalism of bylaws and regulations. What this involved, I think, is remarkably interesting and will help you understand the question of Jesus to Nicodemus. I trust it will not be boring as we go through this for a brief minute or two. The Sabbath law is a good example of the error I believe they made. The scripture simply says to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy by resting from their labor. The man was not to work, nor his servant or his animals. Not content with that, the Jews spent for hour after hour and generation after generation defining what work was and listing all the things that may or may not be done on the Sabbath. The Mishnah is the codified scribal law. The scribes spent their lives working out these rules and regulations. In the Mishnah, the section on the Sabbath extends to no fewer than 24 chapters. We are told that one rabbi spent two and a half years studying one of the 24 chapters. Let me give you an example. For example, to tie a knot was work, but then you must define what a knot is. They go on and on defining not only the knot, but what type of knot, and what type of work one is doing when tying or untying a knot. One thing leads to another, and on and on it goes. We could go on forever giving examples of the extent that this went to, but I will spare you the time and boredom. It was the scribe who worked out these regulations. Then it was the Pharisees who dedicated their lives to keeping them. However misguided a man might be, he must be desperately in earnest if he proposed to undertake obedience to every one of the thousands of rules there was. But that is what a Pharisee did. Pharisee means separated ones. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. It is astonishing that a man of such position should desire to talk to Jesus at all. Thirdly, we find that he was a ruler of the Jews. That is to say, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was a court of 70 members, and it was the supreme court of the Jews. Under Roman rule, the powers were somewhat limited, but still quite extensive. One of their duties was to deal with anyone suspected of being a false prophet. Again, it is an amazing thing that Nicodemus would come to Jesus at all. Fourthly, it is possible that he belonged to a most distinguished Jewish family. It is true that Nicodemus was a member of a highly thought of Jewish family, and there is good reason to think that this is true. From the family name in Jewish history alone, then it is amazing that this aristocrat should come to a lowly son of a carpenter from Nazareth. There are two possible reasons he came to Jesus by night. The first is that he came as a sign of caution. Nicodemus may not have wanted to commit himself to being a follower of Jesus by coming by day. Let's not be too hard on him. It is a wonder with his background that he came at all. It was far better that he came at night than that he not come at all. It is a miracle of grace that he overcame his prejudice and his upbringing and his whole view of life enough to come to Jesus. Secondly, possibly the rabbis thought 
The best time to study was at night. During the day, Jesus was surrounded by many people. Perhaps Nicodemus wanted a brief, private, and undisturbed time with Jesus. There can be no question that Nicodemus was a puzzled man, a man with all the honors of life could provide, and yet something was lacking in his life. He came to Jesus for a talk that lasted some considerable time. He came in the night of darkness that he might find the light. There is a pattern that Jesus followed when he engages someone in conversation. That pattern comes out very clearly in his conversation with Nicodemus. Notice in verse number 2, the inquirer says something. In verse number 3, Jesus answers in a saying that is hard to understand. Thirdly, the saying is misunderstood by the inquirer. That shows up in verse number 4. And in verse number 5, Jesus answers with a saying that is even more difficult to understand, and then follows a discourse and an explanation. Jesus does this so that the inquirer and we today may think things through and discover for ourselves the truth. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, perhaps, at least we can put this interpretation on it, no one could help being impressed with the signs and wonders Jesus did. Jesus answered, it was not the signs and wonders that were important. The important thing was that was such a change in a person's inner life took place that it could only be described as a new birth. When Jesus said that a person must be born again, Nicodemus misunderstood him. Why? The word which we have translated again comes from a Greek word, anothian. This word has three different meanings. Number one, from the beginning, a complete and radical change. Secondly, it means again, in the sense for a second time. And thirdly, from above, and therefore from God. All of these are in the meaning of the phrase born again. To be born again is to undergo such a radical change that it is like a new birth. It is to have something happen to the soul, which can only be described as being born all over again. And the whole process is not a human achievement because it comes from the grace and the power of God. Notice when Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It would seem from a reading of the statement that he was referring to the second definition and that alone. I believe there's more to it that he meant. In the heart of Nicodemus there was a great unsatisfied longing. It is as if Nicodemus says with wistful yearning, You talk about being born again. You talk about the radical fundamental change which is necessary. I know that it is necessary. But in my experience, it is impossible. There is nothing I would like more. But you might as well tell me a full-grown man to enter my mother's womb and be born all over again. You see, it is not the disability of the change that Nicodemus questioned. That he knew all too well. It is the possibility of a change. Nicodemus is up against the eternal problem, the problem of the individual who wants to be changed and who cannot change himself. We still face the same problem today. The idea of rebirth runs all through the New Testament. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse number 3. 
as he says, God who has begotten us to a living hope, the word begotten there, speaks of being born again, God who has birthed us again to a living hope. Again in 1 Peter 1, verse 22 and 23, he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. James speaks of God's begetting us with the word of truth in James 1, verse number 18. The word begetting there again speaks of God giving us new birth. This was not a new idea to the Jews of New Testament times. The rabbi said that a proselyte who was baptized into the Jewish faith and became a Jew was like a newborn child. The change was so complete, he was like a different person. The Greek also understood the idea of new birth. At this time, the most popular religion of the Greeks was a religion called the mystery religion. The mystery religion believed in a union with a god that brought about what was called a twice-born. They believed a person died to the former life and was born into a new life. So, both the Jew and Greek understood the meaning of this term that Jesus used when he said you must be born again. And remember, John is writing to both the Jews and the Greeks. What does rebirth mean to us today is really the question. In John's Gospel, there are four closely interrelated ideas. There is the idea of rebirth. Secondly, there is the idea of the kingdom of God, into which a person cannot enter unless they are born, reborn. There is the idea of sonship, and there is the idea of eternal life. This is not an idea of John's gospel alone. Matthew brings it out even more clear when he writes in Matthew 18, verse number 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. All the ideas have a common thought behind them, a new birth. Jesus said, you must be born again. Remember the four things this means, and then apply them to your life. This is the idea of rebirth. Have you been born again? Do you know what rebirth is all about? Secondly, there is the idea of the kingdom of God, into which a person cannot enter unless they are reborn. Unless you are born again, you can never know what the kingdom of God is. Certainly, you can never enter into the kingdom of God. There is also the idea of sonship. We are no longer called just the children of God, but we are sons of God. We are children of God in the fact that we belong to the family of God. Praise his wonderful name. And then there is the idea of eternal life. Listen, if we're born again, we're going to live on forever. We have eternal life right now. The life that God puts within us is eternal life. The question is, have you truly been born again? Every one of us must answer that question. Have you truly been born again? I invite you to join me in prayer. And let's ask God to come into our lives right now. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you. We come humbly in the sense that we acknowledge that we are sinners saved by only but the grace of God, and that you have saved us that we might be born again a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new creation, praise the wonderful name of the Lord, who has brought a new hope, new life, new abundance in knowing Jesus Christ. I pray for my listeners today, O oh God, that they will come to know you as their personal Savior if they have never accepted Christ into their life. This I pray in Jesus' name. 
and for his glory. Amen. You must be born again. That sums it up, doesn't it? Thank you, Pastor, for a great lesson. Next week, Pastor Bennett will continue to deal with what it means to be born again and the responsibility to know the truth and the right to speak the truth. This should really be a good one. You can write to Pastor Bennett at pastorb at lifespringmedia.com. He loves to get your emails. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.